Well, good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you to Central once again, a Central where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This fall, we've been working our way through a series called Life by Design, asking, what does it mean to be made in God's image as human beings? And on this Reformation Sunday, we're going to sharpen our focus a little bit from the study of the family last week. Today, we'll look at marriage and sexuality. And you might wonder, why in the world would we do that on Reformation Sunday? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's in part because it was through the Reformation that the truth was recovered that marriage is a blessing and a good gift for all God's people, including for the clergy. It's a blessing to be enjoyed. And as Martin and Katie Luther married, they helped get the church back on track with God's design for marriage. So we celebrate that today. But what does marriage and sexuality look like according to God's design? Now, I fully realize that talking about these topics um, is painful for some people. Some of you are single and are happy to remain that way. Others of you are single and really would like to be married. It's a pain. Some of you have been divorced, you've experienced abuse, and maybe even just naming the topic, you feel the shame rise in your own heart. I want to be careful with those tender places in your life this morning. What I would love to do is to spend a few moments asking about and looking at the beauty of God's design that we were made for each other. Tim and Kathy Keller put it this way in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. They wrote, when the Bible speaks about love, it measures it not primarily by how much you want to receive, but by how much you're willing to give of yourself to someone. That's the Bible's picture of marriage and sexuality. How do we see that? Let's pray as we turn our hearts to God's word. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit and open our eyes and open our hearts that we would behold the love of Jesus, that we would see him as the one who's given himself for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and give us renewed wills and renewed hearts that want to follow as your disciples. And so we ask the Lord that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. It's in the strong name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. It's on page 2 in your pew Bible. If you brought your own word, open it up and follow along as God's word is read. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife 
were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We started this series on Life by Design back a couple of months ago, and we started with Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. Do you remember that? I even challenged us to memorize it sometime this fall, so this is your reminder. Keep working on Heidelberg 1. We'll say it later in the service together. But that question is, what is my only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I belong not to myself, but body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been made to belong to the Lord, our Creator, and our Redeemer. And if we don't belong to ourselves, but to the Lord, how should that shape the way we think about marriage and about sexuality? Well, the culture in which we live is not very high on marriage these days. Men and women are remaining single for longer, and some are forsaking the institution of marriage altogether. And the reasons are understandable. That often debated uh, statistic of roughly half of all marriages ending in divorce, that doesn't help to see the, the, the crash of marriage. For many of us, there's deep pain and woundedness of even having been divorced yourself or a child of divorce or you've seen it all around you and it leaves you asking the question, is it worth it? Is it worth giving myself to something that might cause me so much pain? Is it really worth it to even engage in it? When the risk seems so large, do I really want to limit myself to one person with whom I might fall out of love? And it might be hard to maintain the relationship. Is it really worth it? People ask. It's a fair concern. Now, I have zero interest in throwing rocks at anybody today. After all, as I've shared with you all, I'm a man who's experienced the pain of divorce myself. But what I'd like to do instead is to briefly offer and consider the beauty of God's design, both for marriage and for sexuality. And there are so many things that we could say. We could spend 20 weeks on this topic. And I promise you, I'm not going to say everything you want me to say today. But I do want to hit a few highlights that are critical and foundational for God's design for marriage and sexuality. We'll start with this. The relationship of marriage between a man and a woman is a covenant. It's a covenant. We've studied that word before. It means it's a promise, a lasting promise that binds people together. And most often in biblical time, a covenant was offered along with the sacrifice. It's a a sacrificial binding together with one another. Look again at verse 24 of Genesis 2. Where Moses wrote, the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you may have heard that verse in a different translation, the King James Version, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You've heard that before. It's an archaic word, but it means hold fast. It means to be united to, or we could even say to be glued to one another, to to hold fast It's also a word that's used to describe the relationship between God and his people that we hold fast to one another, that we are glued to one another. God has grabbed hold of his people and he's not letting go. And we hang on to him. We grab hold of God and cherish God in love. And it's that same idea, that same word that describes how husbands and wives are to have relationship with one another. We hold fast 
to one another. It's covenant language. It's binding language. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2 and Proverbs chapter 2, marriage is called a covenant. So we're bound together as people. Jesus quoted this same passage in Matthew 19 when he was asked about divorce. There were two different schools of rabbis in Jesus' day, and they debated about when was it legitimate to have a divorce, and the rabbis tried to trap Jesus by getting him to side with one or the other. But instead, Jesus returned to the design. He said in Matthew 19, have you not read how God created them, male and female, to be bound together, to hold fast, to, to become one flesh? He's talking about a covenant. In our world, so often we think about marriage as a contract between two consumers. But the way the Bible presents it is marriage is a covenant. Do you hear the exclusivity in that two people, a man and a woman bound together, willing to curtail the freedom that they might otherwise have in a world, in in a culture that prizes freedom above everything else? Marriage is a pledge before God of covenant faithfulness a man and a woman together, and it, it provides a deep, deep security and intimacy and a place for healing for two sinners who are being joined into one flesh. Think about how that idea of covenant is different from how it might be experienced in a dating relationship or in two adults who are living with one another, cohabiting, but not married, not committed to one another in that way. When you're dating or when you're living together without that covenant commitment, there's always the dynamic of having to put your best foot forward. Because if I'm not my best, maybe my partner might just walk away. It's risky. It doesn't feel very solid and stable. Or on the other side, sometimes it's approached as a a, a consumer relationship. The posture is, as long as I get what I want, as long as I get a good deal out of this relationship and it doesn't cost me too much, and I'll stay in it. But when it does begin to cost me, when loving someone requires sacrifice and requires more of me than I want to give, then hey, I'm out. But what about when it's hard to love? When it gets really hard to be loved, where do we find stability there? That's when the covenant of marriage provides such deep security for people. Because when you're in a relationship with someone, over time, the facade comes down, right? After a while, you can't keep putting your best foot forward all the time. Or there comes a season when one of the partners is vulnerable, becomes ill, and has deep needs, and the cost of loving each other gets really high. And it doesn't feel quite so fulfilling sometimes. And that's when we need to remember that marriage is a covenant So we extend love and care and sacrifice and service to one another, even when the other isn't able to return it. Marriage is a covenant. And it offers this kind of steadying when God joins two lives together to hold fast, to be glued to one another when maybe it feels like everything else in your life has come unglued. There's this one place where you have stability, where people are bound together through richer or poor, through sickness and in health. See, God's created us and designed us to bless us with that kind of fidelity with one another. And it's a picture. Marriage points beyond itself. The, The marriage as given is a picture that points beyond the fidelity of two people and points to the fidelity of God. 
Even if you're single this morning or you're divorced, does it not bless you to see a couple that's been married for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years? Because you see a a picture, you see an intentionality to faithfulness that really isn't just about that couple. It points to the faithfulness of God who has called us his beloved bride. If these two can be faithful to one another for 70 years, how much more in a covenant relationship can God be faithful to me? I will never walk away from me. I'm I'm bound to God and, and God has proved himself steady and faithful predictable that he shall always remain committed to hold us fast as his people that we might be bound to him glued to him marriage as a covenant is truly a picture of God's covenant with us and that covenant picture of marriage is intended to express a promise that goes into the future even when the feelings begin to wane You see, covenant promises made on a wedding day aren't just about the wedding day. The promises that are made are for the day after. And maybe the year after that, the decade after that. Marriage is about promising something that lasts into a lifetime. I uh, won't ever forget the first wedding I did as an ordained pastor, in part because I made so many mistakes in that wedding service. The kinds of mistakes you only make one time and you never, ever, ever do it again. This wedding was uh, on a very hot, humid Atlanta, Georgia day and the wedding was to be outside in July. And uh, won't ever do that again. So because the wedding was going to be outside and it was going to be hot, we planned a pretty short wedding ceremony. But when it came time for the vows in the ceremony, the bride stopped me and she said, I have a few things I'd like to say. It's mistake number two. (laughs) So she started telling stories. She began to tell stories about all the people who were gathered at the wedding, that what we, this person did with me and that person. And these stories seemed to grow more inappropriate the longer she told them. There are things I can't share with you about what she said on her wedding day. But the point was that some of this crazy behavior, this crazy activity, this life of the party is what she was promising to keep going with the groom. She wanted that kind of life. And she was promising, we're going to have that kind of life. So after a few too many stories, I managed to wrangle control back of the wedding service. And, and uh, I turned to the groom and I said exactly this. And what do you have to say? <laughs> and the groom looked at the bride. He looked at me. And he shrugged his shoulders and he said, well, I guess you take the good with the bad. Those were his vows. Where do you go from there? (laughs) That was a mistake to run a wedding like that. So I was thinking back about that that day and that service this week. There was a part of me that was really sad at what became of that wedding ceremony, but there was something in it that was beautiful and deeper there. Now, the, the, um, The rest of the story, the Paul Harvey part is these two have now become Christians and they're married, still married 21 years later. They're still married together. Praise God for that. 
But as I thought back upon this service, there was something profound because the, the bride was promising the feelings and the experiences that they had had up to that moment. She wanted to keep the party going. She wanted that same kind of life. And that's what she was vowing. But the groom had a much longer view. He had an idea about a commitment when things aren't going so great. I'm sure he thought in his mind, like right this minute, things aren't going very great. There's something beautiful about what he said. You take the good with the bad. There's something profound about seeing your spouse as as a sinner who they really are, and yet you make promises to God, vows to God to love them, to take the good with the bad. That's what marriage really is. It's amazing, and it's true that in every marriage, there are days when you're gonna think, I might love you, but I don't like you very much right now. I might love you, but I don't like this right now. I don't like how we're relating to each other. I don't like our circumstances. I don't like the way that we're doing this right now. And if feelings are the things that you think are gonna sustain your relationship, should we be surprised when so many marriages break up when the cost to feel love gets too high? It's too much. I'm out, I can't do it. Tim Keller wrote in his same book, Meaning of Marriage, he said, it is a mistake to think that you must feel love to give it. I think he's right. Certainly a marriage thrives on romantic feelings. They're a gift of God. Those, but those romantic feelings don't form the base of your marriage. Those things aren't the foundation of our relationships. It's a covenant that is making promises that about going into the future. That's the foundation of our marriages and those promises we desperately need God to help us keep them. Marriages is a cleaving of one man and one woman, a holding fast of being glued together of a man and woman as a picture of God's faithfulness to us. And we experience it more deeply when we're willing to love and serve one another. That's how we experience the growth in those covenant relationship with each other and what keeps the promise going into the future. How it's strengthened through serve, strengthened through sacrifice, strengthened through love. In addition to marriage being a covenant that looks to future promises, God's design is also each for the other. We're designed to give We're designed not to measure our love primarily by how much we receive, but how much we offer, how much we give, how we give our lives away in this covenant relationship. And friends, honestly, that flies in the face of our culture. Because our culture professes that the highest value is self-expression. The highest value is self-fulfillment. And even in intimate relationships, sexuality, that's a pathway to self-fulfillment. It's all about me. You're here for me. You complete me, as Jerry Maguire put it. You're here for me. But the way the Bible views marriage and sexuality is exactly the opposite of that. The Bible's view is, I'm here for you. I'm here to give myself for you. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to donate my body, my life, to bless you. That's what marriage really is, each for the other. And again, it's a picture. It's a picture of the way that God has loved us. 
God has purposed to pursue us, to give of himself in love, in commitment, and in sacrifice. Back to Genesis 2, where the man had named all the creatures, but none of them were corresponding, it says, or a fit for him. They all were different. So in verses 18 and 20, God formed the woman and said, she is a helper fit for him or suitable or corresponding for him. Now, it's true that that verse has been used to bludgeon women throughout history, to make women feel inferior, to make women feel like you're, you're just here to help me. <laughs> but I wanna suggest is that understanding of what help or helper means here is not anything like what God intends. It's not what the word means. What does God mean by saying that he made this woman as a helper fit for the man? Well, does it help to grasp that God uses that word helper to describe himself? God calls himself our helper. Any number of times, God says, I am the helper of my people. He uses the exact same word he uses to describe the woman here. It also appears in military contexts where troops come to reinforce a weakened position. When the fighting men are no longer strong enough to carry on the battle, helpers come, reinforcements come. It's the same word. They come to strengthen those who are weak. It's, it's a word that describes standing shoulder to shoulder against the army as you fight together. That's the word that God chose to describe the woman standing shoulder to shoulder with the man as a glorious, dignified, strong image bearer of God designed so that together man and woman rule over God's creation side by side. You see, each of them were designed to serve and to bless the other. She's a helper. He's her helper too. And it also says that she is fit or suitable or corresponding as they become one flesh in verse 24. Maybe a good picture of this is to think about the way that pieces of a jigsaw puzzle fit together. You, know, you can't just put any piece of a jigsaw puzzle together with any other piece. There's, there's a particular curve, there's a, there's a part that sticks out and there's this, you have to fit them together in the way that they were designed to fit. And that's what God says about the way he designed a man and a woman. Not to be too graphic, but their bodies are designed to fit together. That's how he made us. Did you notice, as I read the passage, what was the very first time God ever said something was not good in the garden? When was it? It was when he said the man was alone. It was not good that the man was alone. So God created the woman for him. God created the woman for them to be together. And please note, when the man was alone, it was not another male that God created to fit with Adam. God designed a glorious female corresponding to the man physically, bodily, but also emotionally, relationally, intellectually. The Bible's logic is as these two lives are joined together, one plus one equals one. These two are brought together into one flesh and each one gives of themselves so that they are bound beautifully together in one flesh. It's God's design. We are given each 
for the other. And that same self-giving design for the other as male and female in a complementary fit is the design for our sexuality too. The Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Genesis 2 in 1 Corinthians 6. It's on page 955 in your pew Bible if you want to flip over there. This is what Paul says. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? becomes one flesh with her. The idea there is that the reason that sexual immorality is sinful and the reason it's destructive is because the two are engaged in an act that is pledging to join two lives together with no intention at all of those lives being joined together. It's just an act of fitting together, an act of of being joined together, and lives are a purpose to be completely separate, not joined at all. And Paul says, that is destructive. That's sinful because that's a violation of God's design. The real union that God provides during sex between a man and a woman is that they're joined together and become one flesh. But that's not all. Remember how we talked a few weeks ago about we are made body and soul. We're not just physical creatures. And sex is God's good gift that joins us together as a man and a woman more deeply than just physically. Our culture says that sex is just fulfilling a physical appetite. It's just just an animalistic instinct that we have as, as animals. But what God says is it's more than that. We are bodies and souls. And sex is a sacred act of joining a man and a woman together in more deeply than just a physical way. It's God's design for a man and a woman to picture that act of sex within a covenant of marriage and it's an opportunity for self-giving. It's an opportunity for one to donate their body to the other as they become one flesh. That's God's design for sex. And so when the Christian church says that same-sex sexual desires and same-sex sexual behavior is sinful, That's not an arbitrary prejudice. It's not a phobia. It's an expression of realizing God's design. This is how he made us. As a man and a woman to fit together, body and soul to be joined in a covenant relationship and have that stability of being fit together by God's design. That's why the Christian church labels same-sex activity as sinful. You see, no other sin entangles and enmeshes one person together with another like sexual sin does. There's no wonder that according to that design that we feel so much shame around violating that design because it's a violation of something that's sacred. It's a a sacred union of two people together. And when we violate that beautiful design of God, no wonder we feel shame. The same kind of shame that Adam and Eve felt in the garden. You see, our culture, which doesn't embrace the beauty of God's design, sees sex as merely self-expression. It's a vehicle for self-fulfillment. It's an opportunity for me to feel good. Sex is about belonging to myself and fulfilling my desires. And partner, you're there simply as a means to an end because I'm here to feel better. The way the Lord describes the design for sex in the scriptures is it's a way to give yourself away. 
It's a way to lovingly donate your body, to give your body to the other in the way that God designed you to fit man and woman together, suitable, compatible, complementary. See, sex isn't about just pursuing my own needs. That's why pornography is such a deep problem. It is a complete violation of the intimacy and the connection, body and soul, that God made for us to enjoy with sexuality. It's been made to be enjoyed within a covenant, a foundation of stability, a place where you're known and loved in that kind of covenant. And that sexuality in that environment points to something far bigger than just the act itself. Again, marriage and sexuality are signs that point to a bigger love that God has for you. They point to a a honeymoon attitude that God has toward you as his people. No matter who you are, married or single, divorced, male, female, same-sex attracted, it doesn't matter. God's intention in marriage and sexuality is to point us beyond ourselves to the way that he loves us that he's given himself for us. You might be here this morning and say, well, how does that change my life? What does that have to do with me? Well, the reality is that no one here has the kind of relationship that's pictured in verse 24. Genesis 2, 24, where it says, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. (laughs) Nobody has that. We were designed to enjoy that. We were designed to have relationships like that. And yet shame entered the world. The very next verse in Genesis 3, 1 is about the serpent entering the garden and tempting them to sin and resulting in shame, which enslaves everybody. All of us are enslaved with that kind of shame. And Adam and Eve had no capacity to fix it. They couldn't make it all better. They couldn't deal with their deep sin, their shame, and their brokenness. So God entered in. God did something. He initiated to relieve the sin and the shame. He initiated by sending the Son, the promise of a Savior, the promise of a Redeemer who could fix and forgive our sin and our shame in the way that we can't do it ourselves. And so the Heavenly Father sent His Son to leave the bliss of heaven and come live a perfect life in obedience to all of his commands, to pour himself out as a single man, to pour himself out into his relationships with his friends, with his disciples. He poured himself out only to ultimately be abandoned by every one of them at the cross, and then to be abandoned by his heavenly Father. You see, when Jesus took our sin and our shame upon, his own, upon himself and was crucified in judgment for us, he took our sin, he took our shame and gave us in exchange his perfection and his righteousness so that through faith, by believing in him, through anyone who's willing to entrust their life to Jesus, are brought into a union with God, a union which he pictures as a marriage as we are the bride of Christ, the treasured bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true also of that marriage that God's love for us is measured by what he was willing to give. He gave his own son so that we ashamed sinners would be brought into that kind of fulfilling marriage relationship bound together with God for eternity. If you look carefully in the story of the scriptures, you'll see that it begins with marriage in the garden. 
and it ends with marriage in Revelation. Our destiny is a wedding. Our destiny is to be the bride of Christ and celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb when we will be welcomed home as a treasured bride of Christ forever, beloved by our heavenly Father. And that feast awaits. It awaits any of us and all of us, single and married, divorced, male, female, sinners, all of us who are willing to trust our lives to Jesus, receive the gift of being cherished being held fast by a faithful God who was willing to be crucified that we might be joined to him forever. God's design is that we don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to our loving and faithful creator and redeemer. And it's in that relationship that God gives us that we find the depth of joy that will last forever. So when you look around at the marriages around you, look through them. Look through the 70-year marriage to the God who stands behind it, who loves us even better than a husband and wife who've been together for 70 years. It's even better with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, there are some of us in this room this morning who... Uh, this touches us at a, a deep level. This, your design and seeing it and studying it makes us hurt because we haven't experienced it. And so, Lord, I pray for those who have been wounded in their own families, wounded in marriages, those who've been abused and harmed sexually, those who haven't experienced the, the blessing of having someone love them enough to give themselves for them, Lord. Pray that you would draw near, that you would be the one who promises that you will never leave us and never forsake us. You are the God who is pledged to be united to us forever. And so, Lord, would you begin doing that work of healing, helping us to lean into our relationship with you, that marital union with you, the Lord Jesus. Would you bring healing to the wounds? Would you bring forgiveness to the sin and the shame? And would you lift our heads that we might see you are a great king who loves us beyond what we could ever imagine. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.